0: Hello, and welcome to Connect, the weekly podcast for the California MBA, featuring one-on-one interviews with movers and shakers in the industry. I'm Susan Malazzo, CEO of the California MBA, very happy that you could join us today. Before I get to today's guest, I'd like to thank our 2023 President's Council sponsors. These are a group of companies that provide an enormous amount of financial support for us uh, in large part so that we can continue to be that strong advocacy voice for you in Sacramento before the California State Legislature and our regulators. Advocacy is the cornerstone of what we do at the California MBA, and we're very grateful for the support from these companies. And the 2023 President's Council sponsors include AmeriHome, Arch MI, Consolidated Analytics, Funding Shield, Guild Mortgage, Encelerate, Rocket Mortgage, and Western Alliance Bank. Thank you so much for your support this year. And with that, I would like to uh, welcome today's guests. I'm very excited to uh, be welcoming Jahan Patterson from Debaboy and Clinton. Jahan, welcome.
1: Hi, thanks, Susan, so much for having me and uh, for inviting me to be a guest on the Connect podcast.
0: Yeah, I, I always like to uh, kind of dig right in and get started as to how people got into this industry. So share with us how you came to uh, represent, you know, legal representation for the mortgage industry.
1: So I actually got my start in this field during the Great Recession, but perhaps not in the way that you might think. Um, I was interested in public interest law back as early as law school, but of course I ended up at big law firms right out of the gate. But I did a pro bono predatory lending case uh, with Staten Island Legal Services, um, a nonprofit legal services provider in New York City as a junior associate. And when an opening came available in their homeowner defense project, I leaped at the opportunity to leave big law firm life behind and make the switch. And I absolutely loved it. It was an absolute honor to represent clients in protecting for what for most of them was their most valuable asset at such a vulnerable time in their lives. In most cases, they were fresh off a layoff during that horrible economic crisis or they had suffered some sort of medical issue that had set them back on their lives and and their obligations. I got to learn about some very interesting mortgage products that, you know, maybe in retrospect might have been better suited for more sophisticated borrowers such as interest-only arms or negatively amortizing loans. And I think really critically, I got to see up close how the foreclosure crisis impacted families and neighborhoods. I firmly believe that the stability a home offers an individual or family is critical to how our society functions, and it's a, an enormous driver of economic productivity. And so the role that mortgage originators and servicers play to promote that in terms of homeownership and generational wealth creation is, is so important in my mind. And so After I did that, I went to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau um, where I was an enforcement attorney for about six and a half years. Among other uh, things, I negotiated a settlement um, with a mortgage servicer that specialized in distressed loans um, and resolved claims that involved how mortgage servicing transfers of such loans and, in particular, loans that were um, uh, subject to loss mitigation in flight when they were transferred Um, were handled. And that consent order included some very prescriptive relief about how a servicer's technology system should be built out to ensure compliance um, with the law. And and that's something I'm very proud of. And it was a little bit of a full circle moment for me, actually, um, when earlier uh, this year, the mortgage industry in particular came out Very forcefully in favor of the certainty that the CFPB's mortgage servicing regulations have brought to the market, including investors, servicers, and consumers, in an amicus brief in the funding case before the Supreme Court this term. And then finally, I made the switch to private practice almost two years ago, in large part because I wanted to develop a deeper understanding of the financial services ecosystem that industry regulators and consumers are all a part of. And it felt a little funny to me at the time to make the switch given my background, but I also think, why shouldn't I be the one to advise financial services companies on running their business um, and developing new products in the face of a rapidly evolving and busy regulatory landscape? I think my background as a former regulator and consumer advocate gives me a unique perspective when I counsel my clients, and I think they appreciate that.
0: Well, congratulations on your work in this industry. You you definitely jumped in when uh, it was, uh, we were not at the height of uh, a positive time, but you uh, were able to instill some things that were very positive for consumers, positive for homeowners and for the industry. So thank you for your work on that. We appreciate that. Um, I was pleased to learn that recently you joined the board of directors for the DC Bar Foundation. So congratulations on that. How how did you react to that news? Thank you.
1: Um, It's a tremendous honor to be part of an organization that plays such a vital role in ensuring equal access to justice in the District of Columbia. So the DC Bar Foundation is the largest funder of civil legal services in DC, and it does so primarily through the award of grants to civil legal services providers, providers throughout the city with a focus on legal services to the underserved um, and in eviction, defense, and housing-related matters. It's mission-oriented work, and it's great to be part of a team of incredibly uh, accomplished professionals, much more so than I, um, that, who are all committed to such a worthy cause.
0: Well, that sounds that sounds like a wonderful foundation. I don't think you should, you should not sell yourself short in your accomplishments, because I think you've already done quite a bit to be very impressive in this industry. So. Um, Now, we talked a little bit about the fact that you were an enforcement attorney at the CFPB. What were some of the top compliance areas that seemed to trend the most?
1: Yeah, so the Bureau's priorities uh, definitely evolved both over time and depending on who was in charge. Um, But there was a concerted effort in the early years of the Bureau to write and then enforce the mortgage servicing regulations. I think you'll always see a focus on enforcement activity against the markets and products that tend to have larger impacts on underserved populations, such as debt collection, credit reporting, debt relief, or student lending. The Bureau under Director Chopra's leadership has moved away from enforcing against smaller players in these markets in favor of actions against larger institutions uh, that are perhaps just much higher profile. So we've seen a number of actions in the last couple of years against some pretty big banks. You know, there, was, there were consent orders against Wells Fargo, uh, City, Bank of America, as well as some regional banks just in the last couple of years. But that said, non-banks are not immune from the CFPB scrutiny. I think we're seeing that most notably uh, now in the rulemaking space, where the CFPB has been especially active in recent months with proposed rules to subject large payments providers to the Bureau's supervisory authority, to implement a provision of Dodd-Frank that grants consumers the right to access their personal financial data and to move that data across financial services providers, and to amend the Fair Credit Reporting Act regulations to include data brokers and data aggregators in their scope. We've also seen some enforcement actions against non-bank mortgage servicers um, in particular. Um, There was a fair lending case against uh, Trident Mortgage last year. And earlier this year, there was a a RESPA anti-kickback case against Freedom Mortgage.
0: Uh, There's a, yeah, there's there's the compliance-run servicing definitely, um, you know, got a lot more attention, certainly after the financial crisis. And I think it's, allowed the industry to kind of develop some really good best practices moving forward. So, you know, we're all evolving from um from what we've experienced there. Uh what would you say are some of the like legal trends that mortgage lenders should be paying attention to right now? Maybe some of the court cases that you're seeing or or trends here or another state.
1: Yeah, so um I'd say the biggest topics I'm seeing in my own practice are in the areas of fair lending and enforcement of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and and Fair Housing Act, um, RESPA section eight issues, and the use of artificial intelligence and financial services. So we'll take each one kind of in turn. The DOJ announced its combating redlining initiative over two years ago, and since then has entered into seven consent orders and opened more than two dozen investigations. We're seeing bank and CFPB examiners be more willing to make referrals to DOJ for potential pattern and practice violations of the fair lending and fair housing laws. And in addition to scrutiny of traditional elements of an institution's fair lending program, I think a greater emphasis is being placed on advertising and outreach to minority borrowers which I think also just in turn implicates the strength of a lender or servicers efforts to ensure that limited English proficiency uh, speakers can access credit. When it comes to RESPA, last winter, the CFPB issued an advisory opinion that fees paid by mortgage lenders and other real estate uh, settlement services providers for placement on comparison shopping websites may violate RESPA's prohibition on referral fees if those placements are presented to the consumers in a non-neutral way and have the effect of steering the consumer to a particular lender or service provider. Um, Now, obviously an advisory opinion is not binding law, um, but I think it's a strong signal um, that we may end up seeing an enforcement action that espouses this theory. So so that's something else that, you know, we're keeping an eye on in this space. And then finally, um, a topic that's near and dear to me how artificial intelligence can be marshaled to deliver better and more efficient financial services to consumers. I think there are many uh, use cases where AI can make sense, including customer service, underwriting, or fraud prevention. And while there are legal, operational, and reputational risks associated with those use cases, I think the challenge is in mitigating those risks and making use of technological innovation to improve both the delivery of uh, financial services and to increase access to financial services among various populations of consumers. I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be in the financial services industry right now and to be innovating in this space.
0: There's so much going on in this industry and the introduction of just the, and the growth and expansion of AI in the mortgage space is. it's, we're, we're definitely at an interesting time in this, uh, the history of this, of this industry, that's for sure. Great information. Those are all great, um, great trends for leaders to be thinking about. Um, I am looking forward to hearing you uh, next month at our annual Legal Issues and Regulatory Compliance Conference that's happening in Irvine of December 11th and 12th. Uh, can you give us a little sneak peek about what you might be covering at the conference?
1: Yeah, thanks, I'm really excited about this panel. Um, So I will be uh, part of a panel to discuss the benefits and risks associated with the adoption of generative AI in mortgage lending and servicing. Among other things, I'm planning to talk about the criteria companies can use uh, to assess whether a particular use case makes sense for the deployment of AI. And most critically, um, I'll be talking about the governance that companies can put in place around their use of AI to ensure that they're deploying it in a responsible and compliant manner that nonetheless encourages growth and innovation so i'm tremendously excited um, and looking forward to the opportunity
0: this is uh the first time we've had a a session on this topic in particular on its own so uh just kind of speaks to the, the growth of that in this industry and thank you so much for being a part of it i look forward to seeing you here in just a few weeks in southern california
1: same here. Thanks so much, Susan.
0: And thanks for being on uh, our podcast today. It was a pleasure to have you here, and uh, we are, are grateful for your support and that of your farm. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all of you for joining us on today's podcast. To access any of our past episodes, you can follow us on our YouTube channel. We're also available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. That's it for this week, and we'll see you next time on P&L.